Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and I'm joined by the very fortunate Susanna Greer. Do you know why you're fortunate, Susanna? <laughs> I'm going to assume it's because I work with you. No, nobody likes me very much. It's it's because you get to talk with some amazing people who are really making an impact in people's lives. But in this episode, you spoke with Dr. Steve Morris. And you, you can kind of set the stage for us. Tell us a bit about his seminal discovery. But first, let me share the first few details. He's the scientific founder and chief scientific officer at Insight Genetics. They're dedicated to improving the lives of cancer patients around the world through advanced diagnostics for precision cancer care. But before that, before co-founding Insight Genetics, Dr. Morris was a clinician and researcher at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Okay, Susanna, tell us why you're so fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I was fortunate, and now you are all about to be equally fortunate. Because Steve tells this just incredible story, right? I know you guys don't normally think about scientific discoveries of being this soap opera, but this one is so interesting. So back at St. Jude, like 25 years ago, Steve and colleagues discovered a gene that was so he discovered it in a disease called anaplastic lymphoma. And is discovering a gene itself like all of that amazing a thing? Does that happen a lot? No, no, it doesn't happen a lot. And so I guess let me let me step back and just say, so Steve was working in anaplastic lymphoma and knew that that there was, were some interesting things going on in this disease, that there were that this disease, this particular type of lymphoma, as, as many other cancers do, had lots of changes in the genome. So we would call those rearrangements. But no one knew the genes that might be involved in these rearrangements. So it turned out he discovered one of them. It has a very <laughs> exciting name. Just kidding. It's not an exciting name, but it's appropriate. It's called um, anaplastic lymphoma kinase, or ALK. So the only thing that I guess I'll give you a teaser is to say that it turns out, so this is a kinase, and kinases are, they're important in all cells. They basically help cells to communicate. And the crazy thing that happened in anaplastic lymphoma is that they had these rearrangements occur, and all of a sudden, ALK, this kinase, is completely turned around in the way that it's regulated. And instead of the normal thing that it's supposed to be doing, which interestingly enough, in a side story, we still don't know exactly what that is, but we know it's not this. The thing that it does in this lymphoma is that it tells the cell to divide and to divide some more. And then when you're finished with that, keep on dividing. So that's not great. And turned out that that function, that rearrangement of ALK wasn't just in lymphoma. It was in lots of other cancers as well. So this is a super cool story about this discovery of this kinase, the finding that there's too much of it and it's doing this bad thing in lymphoma and then also in lots of other cancers. And then the conversation around, well, can we drug it, right? If, if there's too much of it there and it's doing a bad thing, can we make a drug to it? And then if it turns out that it is present in lots of cancers, but not in everybody that has that cancer, how can we detect it? And so Steve just tells this beautiful story all the way from the beginning to where he is now. And he has just made 
some remarkable discoveries and changed the lives of so many cancer patients. So I think you're gonna really enjoy learning about AOK. Hi, Steve, how are you? I'm uh, doing great, thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited to talk to you about this uh, really fantastic story of drug discovery that you have to share, but we're gonna have to do a little work to get there. So I guess let's try to start at the beginning. So I think around 25 years ago, you and colleagues at St. Jude published uh, a series of uh, really fantastic papers that detailed the discovery of a gene um, called ALK. Can you tell us a little bit about the ALK protein that is generated from this gene? What does ALK do? Certainly, my pleasure. Um, ALK is one of many proteins that are known as kinases. Um, there are roughly 500 kinases in you, me, everybody, uh, actively working to do their normal job. What is that normal job? It's basically allowing cells to communicate with one another. For example, telling cells to divide into more cells or alternatively, or alternatively telling cells to become some uh, type of tissue, brain, heart, you name the tissue type in the body. So these kinases are critical for cell signaling. Uh, in the case of ALK, the protein that we identified now a little bit over 25 years ago <laughs> It may sound crazy, but we still don't know exactly what the normal function of ALK is. Fortunately, we know a lot about the cancer-causing functions of ALK, and I'll talk about that as we move forward. Uh, we do know that ALK is normally expressed in the brain, but again, we don't know uh, exactly what it's, what it's doing there. Uh, I think the fact that we're more than 25 years from the discovery of ALK and we still don't know that, that speaks to the fact that uh, biology is complicated. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing that it's been 25 years and a very interested and convoluted, I would say, pathway of drug discovery that we still don't know exactly what this protein does. But you do know that it plays a role in a lymphoma. So the disease, the particular type of lymphoma is anaplastic lymphoma, and that's how out got its name, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. We um, began the work that ultimately led to the discovery of ALK in 1990. Uh, it took us about three years to uh, finish that work. Uh, so this is laborious, uh, time-consuming, labor-intensive work, capital-intensive as well. But we ultimately got there. The, the way we arrived at ALK, uh, let me go back to the very beginning. At the time we started this program, this discovery program, it was known that a particular type of lymphoma, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which occurs predominantly in kids, but is found in adults as well, that these lymphomas had a characteristic genetic abnormality, uh, a chromosome rearrangement. They're also called chromosomal translocations. About two-thirds of anaplastic large cell lymphomas contain these, so that was known. What was not known was the actual genes down at the, the very lowest molecular level, what genes were altered by these chromosomal abnormalities. So that's what we did. Uh, we, we sought to identify the genes, and it turned out that one of these genes was a novel kinase. We named it, as you just said, uh, because it, we found it in anaplastic lymphomas and because it was a kinase, anaplastic lymphoma kinase, A-OK. -okay. 
All right, so we're making progress. So 1990 arrives and you you discover ALK and you discover also that there are changes in lymphoma that involve uh, rearrangements of chromosomes and it, it turns out that one of the genes impacted by these chromosomal rearrangements is um, the one encoding for the protein ALK. So why would a kinase play a, a role in cancer? What What's so important about these proteins for, I guess, for all cells, um, but it maybe especially for cancer cells? And how how might that be different in a cancer cell versus a normal cell? Sure. Well, as I mentioned already, kinases normally uh, play a huge role in cell signaling. Normally, uh, that signaling is very tightly controlled. Uh, there's a, a very highly regulated on-off switch for normal kinase function. What happens in cancers such as anaplastic large cell lymphoma uh, in the case of ALK, these chromosomal rearrangements actually essentially cause the breakage of ALK in half. They also uh, cause the same thing with other proteins and mm -hmm. they join portions of ALK with portions of other proteins to create fusion kinases. The one that we cloned back in the early 90s in anaplastic large cell lymphoma is named NPM-ALK. It involves the nucleophosphine protein. Uh, part of it is fused to part of ALK. The reason that's important in driving cancer development, in this particular instance lymphoma, is that these fusion kinases lose this tight regulation of the on-off switch, and they're constantly on. They're constantly signaling to the cells that contain them to divide, divide, divide. Mm -hmm. And at the basic level, that's what cancer is, uncontrolled cell division. So uh, essentially what you're looking at is unregulated kinase activity driving unregulated cell division. All right. So if kinases then play really important roles in... You, you said cell signaling, but another way it sounds like we could talk about that would be communication. That's critical for all cells, right, to know what they need to do and when they need to do it. Also important for cancer cells. And it sounds like the communication, the message that ALK is sending, the presence of too much ALK is sending is it is time to divide and it's still time to divide and we need to do that some more. And that's not something that normal cells do. So so we have a problem then but one of the things that i think is hard for us to understand is how do you how do you know something is druggable how do you target right you know you have this problem you have too much of a protein in a cancer cell but what made you and others in the field think that out could be a good drug target sure well candidly in the early days uh we weren't sure we were kind of pushing the envelope but at the same time, we were discovering ALK and trying to determine whether indeed it was a good drug target. There were other groups around the world working on other kinases. Uh, some of these will be well known to, to many in the audience. For example, HER2, HER2, which is the target for Herceptin, uh, a breast cancer drug, which has revolutionized the treatment of, of that cancer, EGFR is another kinase that is a target for 
multiple therapies for colon cancer, for lung cancer, the Bruton's tyrosine kinase BTK, yet another kinase that is critical for driving chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, and which has been drugged. So the point is, we didn't know on day one. It took five to ten years for our work and the work of others to confirm that kinases would be tractable targets for, for drug development. But as you just heard me say, and that's a very short, very incomplete list of kinases that have now been targeted for uh, cancer drug therapy, and there are yet additional kinases that are currently being targeted for that, man- for that matter for, for cancer treatments. So you're exactly right. It, you weren't working, none of us as scientists and clinicians work in a vacuum. There's a tremendous amount of discovery and translational work going on in the kinase field in general. I think one way that you could help us connect the dots, and this is a challenge because we're talking about decades of work, but I think it's very helpful for our audience to understand that this is what it takes to turn these basic discoveries into drugs. So following your discovery of ALK and our understanding that having too much ALK protein was not a great thing in cancer, turned out to be an actually a predictor of cancer. The observation was made that ALK could be targeted in some non-small cell lung cancer patients. So that's a huge leap. Can you help us to understand how some of this information started to come together to impact these patients? Sure. So uh, just to walk you through a uh, more than 25-year timeline uh, very briefly, uh, after we identified ALK as a driver of anaplastic large cell lymphoma, we and others made the uh, discovery that ALK uh, is also a causative factor in a variety of other cancer types. Uh, A rare type of sarcoma, abbreviated IMT, inflammatory myofibroblastic tumor, it's a mouthful, Uh, certain thyroid cancers, a variety of other cancers as well that I won't go into. But the reason I mentioned that uh, ALK is a cause not only of this type of lymphoma that we originally discovered it in, but other types of tumors, was that we and others were working toward a critical mass. What do I mean by a critical mass? A critical mass that would um, make ALK an attractive target for drug development. And what I'm talking about here is not just the science, but also the economics of it. And we can get into that in just a little bit. But the fact is, to make a decision to develop a therapy against a particular target, you name the targets, you know, it's cancer or uh, neurologic diseases or whatever, you know, there has to be a return on investment. Ultimately, we reached a tipping point where there were a large number, uh, a sufficiently large number of cancer types and cancer patients that it made sense to drug ALK. Really the tipping point that, that, was the the ultimate opening of the dam was the recognition that about 5%, that's all, 5% of lung Mm -hmm. cancer patients, uh, those patients 
the tumors are caused by abnormal ALK signaling. Hmm. And if you do if you do the numbers, uh, you know that, as I say, was the the tipping point that prompted uh, pharmaceutical companies to to pursue ALK as a drug target. So following all of this, a pretty remarkable period of discovery and generation of this critical mass to understand that having too much ALK is a bad thing for lots of different cancers. Um, you, you actually, along with your colleagues at St. Jude, developed a test that would help clinicians determine which patients which patients have too much ALK, right? So where is ALK a problem? Because you listed several cancers where ALK is a contributor to the disease, but it's not all. So can you tell us a little bit about maybe why you developed the test and and maybe just how it works? Certainly. Um, so again, uh, we, we started the work that led to the discovery of ALK in 1990. We had discovered ALK, and we published our first article in the medical literature in early 1994. Very naively, yours truly started knocking on uh, pharma and biotech uh, doors uh, to see if I could interest them in drugging ALK. I say naively because, uh, again, this was in the mid-'90s, and the pharma mindset at that time was the next blockbuster drug. Um, The, the next uh, therapy for hypertension, for high blood pressure, for uh, lipid abnormalities, high cholesterol, that sort of thing. And here we were talking about uh, the cause of uh, a relatively rare type of lymphoma, which affects roughly 2,000 newly diagnosed people in the U.S. each year. Hmm. So that go- gets back to what I was saying about this critical mass identifying enough different types of cancer, enough patients in aggregate to make it uh, a tractable target. So we tried very early to interest, as I say, pharma and biotech in drugging ALK and uh, got nowhere fast. So we uh, thought, well, what can we do at this juncture? Uh, And we thought, well, let's develop a diagnostic test to identify cancers that uh, are driven by ALK abnormalities because this would, uh, we thought, ultimately have benefit in the clinic, as has turned out to be the case, and it would also help us and others identify those other cancers that are driven by ALK rearrangements. So the test that we developed is called a FISH, F-I-S-H, just like in the ocean (laughs) test, but in this case, FISH stands for fluorescence in situ hybridization, the name is not so important. The actual technology is not so terribly important uh, for the audience to know. What is relevant to know is that this is a test that allows a geneticist uh, uh, to look under a microscope at a tumor that has been uh, tested with an ALK fish assay and determine whether that particular tumor that the pathologist is looking at is or is not caused by ALK abnormalities. That turns out to be absolutely critical. I mentioned earlier that 5% of lung cancers are caused by ALK abnormalities. What if you have a a lung cancer caused, uh, one of the other 95% that are caused by other genetic abnormalities? Well, if you're treated with an ALK inhibitor 
and your lung cancer is caused by something other than an ALK abnormality, uh, it's like taking a sugar pill. You have no benefit whatsoever. So it's absolutely essential that a clinician with a newly diagnosed lung cancer or other type of cancer patient knows whether that patient's tumor is or is not caused by ALK abnormalities because it's critical to, to know how to best treat that patient. That's so interesting to me, and I, I think it really speaks to the dedication and, quite frankly, the determination of you and your colleagues, because not only did you discover ALK, I mean, you didn't just go home after that. You and others were able to show that too much ALK is not a great thing. It's a driver of cancer. And then you went on to try to bring this or to get some interest in the pharma market, you actually developed ways to detect it and then were a force to be reckoned with and encouraging pharma to actually drug it. So it's a real testimony to your dedication. Um, I, I imagine it, it was a really long, long road toward to get to that point. Well, yeah, it, it really was. And again, the, the ALK story is not unique. There are many other instances uh, of investigators just like me who uh, have had just uh, as rough a, uh, a path to, um, to pursue. Um, you know, I think, uh, I, I think Winston Churchill said uh, uh, something to, to the effect and, and uh, appropriating it for this purpose. Uh, to be a scientist, you have to uh, take failure after failure with undying enthusiasm. <laughs> you, know, you have to be a little bit crazy, I think. <laughs> Oh, well, we're awfully glad that you and, and your colleagues fit into that category. All right. So I want to maybe wrap up the story of ALK and then move to where you are now. But can you just, because many of our listeners are cancer patients and folks who care about them, what are your thoughts around patients with other types of cancers benefiting from drugs that target ALK activity? Sure. So um, I already alluded to the fact that a variety of cancer types have been shown to be driven by ALK. Um, the involvement of ALK in cancer uh, tends to be uh, uh, in two forms. Uh, uncommon cancers in which a, a substantial portion are caused by ALK abnormalities or common cancers in which a small fraction are caused by ALK. Examples of that, uh, the lymphomas we identified ALK in uh, 25 plus years ago, two-thirds of them are caused by ALK abnormalities. Uh, an example of the other uh, uh, bucket of ALK-driven tumors, lung cancer, in which 5% are caused by ALK mutations. In addition to those two cancer types, it's now apparent that broad spectrum of cancers can be caused by ALK, or at least subsets of those cancers can be caused by ALK. Uh, thyroid cancer, um, uh, a type of uh, pediatric uh, nerve uh, cancer called neuroblastoma, uh, rare leukemias, B-cell lymphomas, uh, another type of lymphoma distinct from the lymphoma that we identified ALK in, um, uh, mesothelioma, hmm. uh, not the uh, 
pleural or thoracic, the, the type that occur in the chest, but uh, a, a less common type of mesothelioma that occurs in the abdominal cavity called peritoneal mesothelioma, a fraction of, of those mesotheliomas are caused by outmutations. So the upshot for um, individuals in the audience is that it is absolutely essential in 2019 if you are diagnosed with a cancer to have your cancer tested for these driver mutations, not just ALK, but mm -hmm. there are a whole spectrum of driver mutations, other kinases, other types of uh, abnormal proteins that cause cancer. And the reason that's important is what I alluded to earlier. Um, only if your cancer is caused by ALK mutations do you respond to ALK inhibitor therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, the same can be said for EGFR mutations. You'll only respond to EGFR inhibitors. And I could go down this list. So sure. uh, if, you, if you don't know what is driving the cancer, you're, you know, shooting in the dark. You don't know right. where your target is. You know, one of the things that I've, I've been thinking, I was, I've sat here and listened to your story as you went from discovery to drugging this protein, was that in a way you were enabling clinicians to really look for a needle in a haystack, right? What is the, and it is out the actual needle that, that is responsible for the cancer in their patients. And so a part of that journey for you was developing a diagnostic test to enable clinicians to make better decisions um, about how to treat cancer patients. So I guess one of the questions I have is that you are now at Insight Genetics. So you left St. Jude's and joined Insight Genetics. Um, now you're the scientific officer and chief medical officer. So I, I have to imagine that some of your journey really impacted your decision to join Insight Genetics. But maybe I'm wrong. Can you tell me what motivated your move? Yeah, no, you're, you're correct. You know, what, what motivated the move? So academic medicine is wonderful, and uh, I would not have changed my career path, my, my professional career, one iota. Uh, having said that, uh, everything has its pros and cons. Um, academia is a wonderful place to learn, get on-the-job training uh, when you're just starting out, and to uh, make impactful discoveries like, like Al. On the other hand, academia is not... Uh, not the environment if you want to impact uh, patients to the full extent possible from a commercial standpoint. And what I mean by that is that diagnostic assay development, uh, that is a, a long, uh, rigorous path. Uh, it's capital intensive. It cannot be done in an academic setting. Uh, you need these diagnostic tests out there in a box that uh, diagnostic labs around the world can purchase and, and mm -hmm. use for their patient testing. Uh, and only in a commercial setting can you develop these assays. The same, can, same thing can be said for drug uh, development. Uh, although there have been a handful of examples of successful drug development in an academic setting, those are very much uh, the exception to the rule. And 
again, because drug development is so capital intensive, uh, so risky, um, it, it's it just cannot be done efficiently in an academic environment. It has to be has to be done in a commercial environment. And, and the reason I mentioned drug development is yes, I. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Insight Genetics, actually, and I continue to work as the scientific officer for Insight. Insight develops these diagnostic uh, assays for cancer characterization. But in addition to that hat, I wear other hats, uh, serving, for example, as the chief medical officer for uh, some companies that develop uh, therapies uh, for cancer. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but but the Basically, the reason, reason I left academic medicine, left St. Jude, was to um, take on career number two and um, realize uh, activities that could only be pursued efficiently in a commercial setting. So you sit from a place of great expertise to share with us some of the challenges that we face now on the commercialization side of science. And I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to understand what are some of the challenges that we face in trying to move either a diagnostic or a therapeutic to the market? Sure. Uh, Let me start with therapeutics. Uh, I'm not sure that the lay public realizes how difficult it is to develop a new drug. Frankly, I didn't realize it after my medical training until I really was fully cognizant of of the process and how difficult it is. Just to give you a few numbers to to put it into perspective, roughly one in ten drugs uh, that is in development is ultimately approved for clinical use, one in ten, ten percent. The timeline to develop a new drug is somewhere between 10 and 12 years. takes a long time. Uh, the expense of developing a new drug is somewhere in the ballpark of a half billion dollars. Mm-hmm. It can be a little bit less, several hundred million, uh, but often it's uh, several billion. That's to develop it before uh, uh, you know, any revenue is generated on that drug. So another uh, number I think that's relevant to this uh, discussion of those drugs that are approved, only about 40% of them actually make money for the company that has developed them. So I, I mentioned all of those uh, numbers, uh, again, just to emphasize how difficult and how risky uh, drug development is. Um, now, the same thing can be said for diagnostic assay development. Uh, the, the timeline, the uh, capital uh, requirements, um, uh, are less for diagnostic development. Uh, the risk is not as great, but uh, it, it, again, if you're looking at the return on investment from a, a corporate standpoint, uh, the monies that can be realized from sale of a successfully approved and marketed uh, diagnostic assay are much lower than with a therapeutic. So less risk, uh, but less reward. The bottom line is that whether you're talking about diagnostics or therapeutics, it's exceedingly difficult, exceedingly uh, 
time, labor, and capital intensive. So you lay out a pretty challenging story, right? It's for a new drug and to some degree a new diagnostic. It's going to be a long time, a lot of money. And even once you get to the end of that, less than half, you said, of new drugs at least actually make a profit. So what is it then? So obviously you're in this space because this is exciting to you and you feel like you can be impactful. So maybe you could share with us, what is it about this space, this therapeutic space in cancer or the diagnostic space that excites you? Um, maybe it's a, we hear a lot in the news now about precision medicine. Maybe maybe that's where you, you feel you can be impactful and where you see some excitement on the horizon, but I'd love to know your perspective. Oh, there's no question. Uh, so when I entered uh, the field of cancer medicine, uh, uh, this was, uh, oh, this, uh, let me think, uh, this was in 19, um, basically 1986 uh, when I finished my training and, and started actually working in cancer medicine. Um, just to give you an idea of the state of the art at that point in time, uh, I'll take the example of lung cancer, but essentially all cancers were, were treated similarly. Uh, back in the mid-'80s, all, all lung cancers were considered a single entity. All lung cancer patients were treated with the same therapy, uh, which was a, a cocktail of uh, conventional chemotherapies. Uh, so I guess you could argue that was a... a, a minimalist, uh, simple way of uh, treating patients, and it would have been great had it worked. The problem is using that approach, uh, a, a vast minority of patients responded, uh, maybe 10% at best, and those responses were partial responses. The tumors would shrink partially. There were essentially no cures. Mm -hmm. So you fast forward uh, now about 30, 35 years later, and we learned so much because of smart biology, uh, mm. insights from other areas, uh, precision medicine that you mentioned. And, and what is precision medicine? Precision medicine is now knowing in 2019 that lung cancer is not one type of cancer. It's 10 or more different types of cancer. 5% are caused by ALK mutations. A similar percent is caused by a mutation of another kinase called ROS1, R-O-S-1. Uh, RET, R-E-T, another kinase, causes another slice of the lung cancer pie. EGF receptor, I already mentioned, yet another slice of the lung cancer pie. And again, if, if, if you're a newly diagnosed lung cancer patient or colon or you name the cancer type, Please, if you do anything, if you learn anything from our discussion today, have your tumor tested comprehensively for all of the genetic mutations that drive cancer, uh, that, that, that drive the development of these cancers. Because then and only then will you be able to know what therapy will be effective for your tumor. So these, that's precision medicine knowing that a particular cancer is very heterogeneous, identifying with 
diagnostic assays, what the driver mutation or mutation, sometimes there are more than one, that are causing your individual's cancer so that you can target therapy to the individual, not to the group of patients as a whole mm -hmm. with lung or, or a particular cancer type. So that's precision medicine. That's targeted therapy. So it sounds like you've gone from a space during your career where we had a pretty abysmal response rate for generalized cancer treatment to a place where we have real hope in this place and where new discoveries are being driven by new diagnostics, by using lots of expertise from lots of different fields um, in really smart ways, as you said. So from this, I'm assuming you see a place of excitement and some hope in the future that will continue to get better and better at understanding which patients need which therapies and which diagnostics can help us make those treatment decisions. Oh, there's no question, no question whatsoever. A, a good analogy that the audience will, uh, will, uh, uh, I think uh, recognize easily is you know um, cancer the our knowledge of cancer its causation and how best to treat it has evolved over the past thirty years uh, uh, analogous to uh, telephone technology hmm. we've gone from the part we've gone from the party line telephone uh, to to state of the art most recent generation iPhones. So, <laughs> uh, again, it's essential uh, if you're diagnosed with a cancer in 2019 that your cancer is treated with current-day technology. I love that analogy. We could probably go back even further where we were, you know, got two tin cans with a string between them and trying to have a conversation because we've made such tremendous growth just by leaps and bounds. And um, just we're excited about all that you've done, all that you're doing, and um, all that you'll continue to do. So I, I have one more question, and that is going to span just a small piece of your career, but I, you've been at this for a long time, and the American Cancer Society was involved in, in a part of your career and contribution. Um, I think it would be interesting for our listeners to hear, what role did the ACS play in, in all the things that you've talked about today? It was absolutely critical. Um, I, I, again, I don't know that the uh, general public is fully cognizant of how difficult uh, to do this work is, but also to get the money to pay for doing this work. It's, uh, it's a tough road to hoe just to, again, not bore you with numbers, but to, to give you one or two numbers that I think uh, emphasize this point. If you're an academic investigator, you have to try to determine what studies you're going to be doing uh, so that hopefully, ultimately, you'll be able to make an impact. You also have to worry about how you're going to pay your bills. And uh, the way you do that is by writing grant applications. Uh, these are anywhere from a minimum of 30 pages long up to several hundred pages long, depending upon the application and the, and the topic. The success rate of these applications that an investigator submits to ACS, to the National Institutes of Health, the federal agency that, that funds uh, biomedical research, to other uh, funding agencies, 
that success rate is about 10%. So 90% of the time that you're working hard to write these grant applications, submitting them, crossing your fingers that uh, you'll be successful in getting funding, you know you're going to fail. Only 10% succeed. So ACS, I was lucky enough to receive ACS funding that uh, was critical, uh, our discovery of ALP. Uh, it also helped as well with our discovery of a, another gene uh, that causes uh, leukemias. So it was absolutely critical, especially early in my career, to give me credibility, give me the funding to turn the lights on and, and keep moving forward in the lab and to establish my career. So absolutely critical. Well, thank you for that explanation. I think that is helpful. And I just we are excited to have played a role early on in your success and uh, even more excited about all the things you're doing. So thank you. We'll let you get back to it. But thanks for sharing so much time with us and this fantastic story of drug development. And uh, we'll look forward to, to staying in touch. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity.